Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If you could please uh, stand and we'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And Heavenly Father, during this year of faith, through your church, you call us to set our eyes anew on your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, your eternal word, and for us and for our salvation, the Word made flesh. In Jesus Christ is found the fullness of divine revelation, especially through our study this year, the documents of the Second Vatican Council and of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. May our ears, minds, and hearts be open the more to receive the Word of God with reverence and proclaim it with faith. As we come together this evening, we beseech you to send down upon us the gift of your Holy Spirit, that he might deepen our union with Christ and heightened our understanding and appreciation for the riches of our faith. We ask this through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the great woman of faith, and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father Donahue, and uh, thank you for inviting us back to Holy Spirit Catholic Church. Our speaker this evening... <laughs> I was going to read my bio to you, but I think we'll skip that. We have a lot to cover tonight, and I apologize last week for getting a little bit caught up in the whole business. I love the Bible, and I got a little bit carried away, and I didn't cover any of the notes I was supposed to cover. So we got a lot to cover. We got a lot to cover this week with you. I want to begin. If you have last week's handout, don't pull it out, because that was part of my problem. I'm dealing with two different translations. And I'm looking at this translation and your translation, and the two things weren't jiving. So I'm going to give you references. You can write them down and go back. Dei Verbum, by the way, is the text on divine revelation in Vatican II. It is a highly abused text, at least for one sentence, which we are going to be dealing with in detail this week. But it's only very thin, very small. You can go home and read this. You can pull it off the Vatican's website, vatican.va. You can also get it on our website on our Learning Center. We just posted it. I want to begin with the first section of paragraph two. That means we only got through one paragraph last week. That's not good. <laughs> it pleased God in his goodness and wisdom to reveal himself and to make known the mystery of his will. His will was that men should have access to the Father through Christ, the Word made flesh, in the Holy Spirit, and thus become sharers of the divine nature. This is the purpose of divine revelation, period. It is the purpose of our faith, that we might become sharers in the divine nature. By this revelation, then, the invisible God, from the fullness of His love, addresses men as His friends and moves among them, in order, whenever you read in order in a text, pay attention, okay? Here's the reason why he did this. To invite and receive them into his own company, period. Now, what is the company of God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To invite us into a participation of the inner life of the Holy Trinity. Huh? That we might be called sons in the Son, this is the purpose of divine revelation. 
that's just a little reminder from last week. And it's the most central point of the whole text. And everything after that and before it has to do with that point. That he wants us to share in his own blessed life. Now chapter 2 is where we really left off. And uh, chapter 2 talks about the transmission of divine revelation. Now that we know this great truth, that God wants to share his blessed life with us, how does he make sure that is then communicated to all people? Susie asked last week, does everyone have access to divine life? And the answer is absolutely yes. He gives us, every single person on earth, an opportunity to come to him in our own unique way. In our own unique way. Some of those ways are hidden in the mysteries of God himself. But how does he ensure that every single person has access to his word? Chapter 2, paragraph 7. God graciously arranged that the things he had once revealed for the salvation of all people should remain in their entirety throughout the ages and be transmitted to all generations. Therefore, Christ the Lord, in whom the entire revelation of the Most High God is summed up, commanded the apostles to preach the gospel, which had been promised beforehand by the prophets, and which he fulfilled in his own person, and promulgated it with his own lips. In preaching the gospel, they were to communicate the gifts of God to all men. In other words, it is possible for God to have revealed himself in some other way. In fact, we do know that he revealed himself through nature, as we talked about last week. But he also chose that his revelation should be communicated to men through the preaching of the apostles and those whom he appointed. They appointed. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, which says this exact point very clearly. Chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. He promised that he would remain with us always. And that our job, knowing that gift, that he would remain with us, our job was simply to open our mouth and to deliver that which we had received. Namely, that God had come to give us participation in divine life. And through knowing that, we would come to Him and receive that gift. Through His divine revelation, which is manifest in the sacred scriptures and in the church, and, say, most perfectly, huh, in the sacraments of the church, by which we receive the life-giving body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the gift of the Most Holy Spirit. Okay? I will remain with you always. Why is this point important and why does chapter 2 of the Verum deal with this? Because this point is under attack today and it's been under attack for the last 500 years. Because many who call themselves protesters, those who are protesting the Catholic Church, Protestants, say that at some point, This did not happen. That Christ did not remain with his church as he had promised. And that, there's two basic positions that are held, that by the year about 325 at the Council of Nicaea, the church became so corrupt that it stopped delivering that life-giving message so that people could no longer receive the gift which God had come to give. 
and others will take maybe a more, say, conservative position, if you want to call it conservative, you call it liberal, I don't care what you want to call it, and will say, no, by the year 100, with the death of the last apostle, the apostle John, the church became so corrupt that it could no longer hand on divine revelation. So I want to look at just a couple of texts that chapter 2 points out to us. The first you want to write down is Matthew 28. The second we want to go to John chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus says, I have yet many things to say to you. Chapter 12, verse 12. But you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Not into all error. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take, and so forth. He will lead you into all truth. Turn to 2 Timothy. Now you guys know where 2 Timothy is. You remember the epistles that are written to the communities, right? After Acts of the Apostles. To the communities first, and then to the individual people. So you're going to find 1 and 2 Timothy right after 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 1. You with me? You then, my son, be strong. This is St. Paul talking to Timothy. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And when... You have heard from me before many witnesses and trust a faithful man. Notice he does not say what I have written to you. He says what you have heard from me and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. That's three generations. Actually, four generations. We have Paul. We have Timothy. We have those that Timothy is going to appoint and he instructs those he's appointing to hand on to next generation. So, that the church fell away at the year 100 is absolutely contrary to Scripture. If you want to go into this a little bit more, I encourage you to go and listen to the talk that I gave on Ignatius of Antioch, Ignatius of Antioch, over at St. Michael's about two years ago, and I deal a little bit more in depth with this point. We don't have time to get into it too much tonight. It's posted on our website, and you can listen to it there, because you cannot hold either the 325 position or the 100 position, neither of them are tenable. Christ said He would remain with us always. And that the Holy Spirit would lead His church to lead us into all truth. Fundamental. That divine revelation, that deposit of faith, that gift of knowledge that we were to be received into the company of God is given to us in two forms. And those two forms are written about in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by epistle, by letter. The two forms by which we receive that gift of God's invitation to divine life. What is written down in the sacred scriptures and what is orally handed on or what is taught, like we saw St. Paul teaching Timothy, what is taught by the church. Two forms of the one revelation of God. And so I will share with you a quotation from paragraph 9 of Dei Verbum. I'm sorry, paragraph 10. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the Word of God. Both of them, and this is uh, paragraph 9, both of them flowing out of the same divine wellspring come together. And I want you to listen to this as I'm reading this because I'm going to ask you a question about it. I want you to understand what's being said. Both of them 
flowing out of the same divine wellspring. What is that divine wellspring? Yeah, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Holy Trinity. They come together in some fashion to form one thing. And that one thing is? To form that one thing. It's divine revelation. And they move towards the same goal. And that goal is participation in divine life. Both of them, flowing out of the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing. I say that one thing is divine revelation, but that one thing, as I'm going to point out in a second, is also the church. Because the church is the manifestation of that gift of participation in divine life. It is the incarnation of that invitation. The key to this process is that this divine word enters into human history as communicated to us via the created order, specifically through men. And these men are bound together to form the church, which is the body of Christ. And that body of Christ both writes and speaks. It both writes and speaks. So I ask you the question. I mentioned the golden hills, which I saw right last week, of California growing with wheat. If I say to you that the hills are golden brown, and I come up here and write on the board, the hills are golden brown, what is the difference? It's the same divine gift which is given to the church, which the church then communicates to men in two different forms. Written through epistle and through teaching, through speaking. And we are guaranteed on both fronts that what we are receiving is truly the Word of God because of Christ's promise that He would remain with us always and send us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Dei Verbum 7, paragraph 7 says, This sacred tradition then, and the sacred scripture of both testaments, this is very beautiful, are like a mirror. The scriptures of the Old Testament and the oral tradition of the church are like a mirror in which the church, during its pilgrimage journey here on earth, contemplates God. What are they talking about there? Stretch your mind a little bit. The sacred tradition then and the sacred scripture of both Testaments are like a mirror. How are they like a mirror? Who's looking in the mirror? God? It's not not saying it's a window. The church is looking in the mirror. So you see how beautiful this is. That God gives us the gift of His divine revelation to the church. The church writes and the church speaks. And what does it write and speak about that divine revelation? Namely, that we have an opportunity, a gift to become partakers of the divine nature. And therefore, what the church has written and what the church has spoken becomes as a mirror to her. The church is made in the image and likeness of God. It is the body of Christ, as St. Paul says. And so by looking into the divine revelation, into sacred scripture, and into the teachings of the church, she sees what she herself is called to, namely participation in divine life. Does that make sense? 
I encourage you to go back and read that text and meditate upon it. It's quite beautiful. St. Jerome says the exact, same, the exact same words about the creed. At the end of the section on the creed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, he says, let the creed be as a mirror to you. For it is the revelation, the creed is, the revelation of the triune God in whose image and likeness you have been made. Yeah, St. Jerome. It's in the last paragraph of the Catechism on the Creed. I can give it to you during Q&A if you want. De Verbum 10 says, in conclusion of chapter 2, It is clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God's sacred tradition and sacred scripture and the magisterium of the church are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the other. You can't close the mouth of the one who writes. You can't cut off the hand of the one who speaks. Are so connected and associated with there that one cannot stand without the other. Working together, each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, they all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. Conclusion chapter 2. Chapter 3, which is the most difficult part that is under the most criticism today. On all fronts. And I have to share it with you. I will read you the section which we have to deal with. Chapter 3, paragraph 11. The divinely revealed realities which are contained and presented in the text of sacred scripture have been written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For Holy Mother Church, relying on the faith of the apostolic age, accepts as sacred and canonical the books of the Old and New Testament, whole and entire, with all of their parts, on the grounds that, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author and have been handed on as such to the church herself. Since, therefore, all that the inspired authors or sacred writers affirm should be regarded as affirmed by the Holy Spirit, we must acknowledge that the books of Scripture firmly and faithfully and without error teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided in the sacred Scriptures. Firmly, faithfully, and without error Teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided in the sacred scriptures. Here's the problem. Does the phrase, for the sake of our salvation, modify that truth? Does it modify truth so as to limit inerrancy to specific parts and sayings? Or does this phrase modify and explain, wished to see confided, so that the phrase explains the purpose of divine revelation is for the sake of salvation. Hmm? The latter, we would say, huh? But you can see how the text could be confusing for those who want to find a loophole through which they can drive heresy. And so both liberals and traditionalists within the church have used this text on the one hand to say that the Council Fathers blew it in writing it, and the others have used it to say that the church has overturned her traditional teaching. Okay. I'm going to be quoting from Father Brian Harrison, basically verbatim for the next 10 to 15 minutes. We have posted his text on our learning center, Father Brian Harrison, who deals with this problem. He says, Many tradition-conscious fathers at the council 
we're concerned that this modification, this addition for the sake of our salvation, seriously weakened the text because it seemed to open to the interpretation that Scripture can be in error when it speaks of matters which supposedly are not of salvific importance. Do you see the problem? Kind of? Kind of. Okay, we're going to get to it. I'm going to show you the problem in about two seconds here before we burn the book that I'm going to read from. (laughs) So let me be clear first from paragraph 11 of Dei Verbum. The church accepts the entire Bible with all of its parts as written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and has God as its author. Period. Therefore, it is whole and entire in all of its parts without error. That last sentence is mine. I want to state that up front. With that said, some trying to find a loophole in this text have misused Dei Verbum and use as an example, which we were going to look at, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look there real quick. I'm not going to read the text. You already know it. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 talks about the birth of Jesus Christ which says in verse 25 that Joseph knew her not until she had born a son. Okay, till she had born a son. How can we understand this text? Father Raymond Brown in his book The Virginal Conception or maybe he should have said the so-called virginal conception and so-called bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ says this on page 19 of my edition here. As we have said, the Second Vatican Council, and this should be the first red flag for everyone, reversed a tendency in applying inerrancy to almost every aspect of the Bible and applied it only in a very general way. Hmm? He then quotes this text, removing these, these commas here, and opens the text to be read in the way that I think it should not be read. And the fathers, as I'm going to point out to you, the council fathers did not think it should be read. He says, the Roman Catholic position now sees inerrancy to apply to, quote, that truth which God wanted put into the sacred scriptures for the sake of our salvation. Huh? For the sake of our salvation. Only those truths which were absolutely necessary for the sake of our salvation. The human nature and the divine sonship of Jesus are truths gleaned from the infancy narratives which would meet this qualification of inerrant teaching. Dash, is the bodily virginity of Mary such a truth? Is the bodily virginity of Mary such a truth? He asked the question. We must face the possibility that in good faith the evangelists have taken over an earlier belief in virginal conception that does not have an authentic historical basis. In short, The presence of the virginal conception in the infancy narratives of the two Gospels carries no absolute guarantee of historicity. Okay, when I was at Christendom College, we used to burn books like this. We'd have big book burning parties, but I've grown out of that, I guess. He then talks about the church and affirms that the church from the earliest days has confessed this aspect of the faith, that Mary, yes, bodily, was a virgin. He says, yet, many scholars are convinced that the real thrust of creedily reciting birth from the Virgin Mary involved the reality of Jesus' birth and his humanity, not the exact how of his conception. 
the bodily virginity of Mary in conceiving Jesus, and he goes on and so on. You can see his point, I guess. Okay? In his book on birth of the Messiah, he says, the scientifically controllable biblical evidence leaves the question of the historicity of the virginal conception unresolved. He says, is it necessary for salvation that Mary was bodily a virgin? Hmm? Was it necessary for salvation? He doesn't think so. He doesn't think so. And therefore, that statement is not protected from error because it was not placed there, according to Father Raymond Brown, for the sake of our salvation. You guys can hiss and boo. Okay. You can see how he's misusing the text. Well, maybe you can or you can't say, well, there is a problem here. There is a problem. We'll maybe talk in the Q&A a little bit about this some more. So what can we say about this? First of all, what was the intention of the fathers of the council? The quotation from Pope John XXIII at the opening of the council. The council wishes to transmit the doctrine pure and integral without any attenuation or distortion. He continues, Our duty is not only to guard this precious treasure as if we were concerned only with antiquity, but to dedicate ourselves with an earnest will and without fear to that work which our era demands of us. In other words, his effort is not to make changes as Father Brown would have us believe. Reversed attendancy. Pope Benedict, in his address to the Curia in 2005, was laying out his, uh, a plan, many think, a plan for his papacy. And he says the situation that was in the church following the Second Vatican Council was very much like that of the church following the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. And he quotes St. Basil, who says, The raucous shouting of those who through disagreement rise up against one another, the incomprehensible chatter, the confused din of uninterrupted clamoring has now filled almost the whole church, falsifying through excess or failure the right doctrine of the faith. And in his homily just a few days ago, in his opening Mass for the Year of Faith, he says, This is why I have often insisted on the need to return, as it were, to the letter of the Council, that is, to its text, also to draw from them an authentic spirit, and why I have repeated that the true legacy of Vatican II is to be found in them. Reference to the document saves us from extremes of anachronistic nostalgia and running too far ahead and allows what is new to be welcomed in a context of continuity. A continuity with that which came before. Not a reverse to reverse a tendency. Huh? The council did not formulate anything new in matters of faith nor did it wish to replace what was ancient. Rather, it concerned itself with seeing that the same faith might continue to be lived in the present day, that it might remain a living faith in the world of change. I'm reminded here in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, the deacon, when it is time for the communion of the faithful, comes out holding the chalice, the blood of Christ, and he says, approach with fear of God, with faith, and with love. How different the approach of Father Raymond Brown is, who's trying to find a loophole in the text by which he might insert a new teaching rather than hold and explain the teachings which the church has held for 2,000 years. Approach with fear of God, with faith, and with love. So how do we resolve this problem? 
when this issue came up on the floor of the council, there was much discussion and debate. Pope Paul VI intervened personally at the council. And the result of that intervention was that a footnote was added to the text. And in that footnote, there are a number of texts, but two extremely important texts. You know that when there's a footnote, the footnote gives context to what is being said and explains it more fully. So if there's ever a doubt what the author is intending, it will be explained in the footnote. It was placed there as part of the council text. He references both Providentissimus Deus by Leo XIII and Divino Afflante Spiritu by Pope Pius XII. I will quote from you the text from Leo XIII. It is absolutely wrong and forbidden either to narrow inspiration to certain parts only of Holy Scripture or to admit that the sacred writer has erred. For all the books which the church receives as sacred and canonical are written wholly and entirely with all of their parts as the dictation of the Holy Spirit. And so far is it from being possible that any error can coexist with inspiration, that inspiration not only is essentially incompatible with error, but excludes and rejects it absolutely and necessarily as it is impossible that God himself, the supreme truth, can utter that which is not true. Hmm? You can go and look at these other texts in the footnotes of De Verbum. They'll be on our website. However, we are faced with a problem. First of all, because I only have 15 minutes left. <laughs> Turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 13. We are going to look at a real difficulty, not one made up by Father Raymond Brown, but a real difficulty in the text which we should deal with. Joshua chapter 10, verse 13. I choose this because it's easy and it's a little bit of fun. Joshua was in a major battle. They were destroying the enemy. Chapter 10, verse 12. Then spoke Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the men of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still at Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed. Now, we may have some geocentrists among us, but for most of the people in the room, what's wrong with that text? The sun doesn't move, does it? It appears to move to those on earth, but as we know, the earth rotates around it. The sun does not rise and set. So, how are we to understand the fact that the scriptures are written without error and yet contain items which appear from a scientific standpoint to be in error. The answer is dealt with, it's not just Bible talk either. You can't go down that road to the Catholic comatose. In De Verbum 11, it says, To compose the sacred books, God chose certain men who all the while he employed them in the task, made full use of their powers and faculties. Pius Twelfth in Divino Afflante Spiritu, gives a little bit more meat to the subject, and in paragraph 3 says this, The first and greatest care of Leo XIII when I, the text I read you earlier, was to set forth the teaching on the truth of the sacred books and to defend it from attack. Hence, with grave words, did he proclaim that there is no error whatsoever 
if the sacred writer, speaking of things in the physical order, went by what sensibly appeared, as the angelic doctor says, St. Thomas Aquinas, speaking either in figurative language or in terms which were commonly used at the time, and which in many instances are in daily use at this day, even among the most eminent men of science. For the sacred writers, or to speak more accurately the words of St. Augustine, the Holy Ghost, who spoke by them, did not intend to teach men these things, that is, the essential nature of the things of the universe, things in no way profitable to salvation. The answer to our difficulty is found then in the fact that there are two authors of sacred scripture, God, who does not err, and man who does not err, and yet God uses his faculties to, in a sense, place his own fingerprint upon the text. So I ask you, what exactly is inspiration? Pius XII goes on a little later in the text to give, I think, the clearest explanation of it. And like I said, I'm reading a lot to you, but I think it's worth it because I couldn't say it any better. He says, The inspired writer in composing the sacred books is the living and reasonable instrument of the Holy Spirit impelled by divine motion. He so uses his faculties and powers that from the book composed by him all may infer the special character of each one and as it were his personal traits. Let the interpreter then, with all care and without neglecting any light derived from recent research, endeavor to determine the peculiar character and circumstances of the sacred writer, the age in which he lived, the sources written or oral to which he had recourse, and the forms of expression he employed. I cannot tell you how important this point is. Because if you are going to be able to receive the Word of God, you have to be able to receive it according to the fashion in which it was written. You will err when reading the sacred scriptures unless you seek to do what Pius Twelfth is asking for. To try to gain the intention and the character of the author who is writing. And that means you have to ask yourself, what did God want placed in this text? And what was the intention of the human author also? St. Augustine says, Here, as indeed is expedient on all their passages of sacred scripture, it should be noted on what occasion the apostles spoke. We should be careful and faithful to observe to whom and why he wrote. Lest being ignorant of these points or confounding one with another, we miss the real meaning of the author. I will share with you a quotation from Antonio Fuentes. You should get this book, by the way. And you can come up and grab a, a, write down the, the information. It's a guide to the Bible. It's a nice commentary on Scripture. Very nice. He says in his opening section, The inspired writers reported events as they saw them, in line with the cultural and mental outlook of the period in which they lived. For example, they will say that the sun goes down or that it stopped, huh? the text we were looking at. They would be telling lies if they said otherwise. The only aspect of this which is of interest to the reader of the Bible is knowing what people mean when they express themselves in this way. If we realize what they mean, then we will understand the core of revealed truth 
much better. The key then to understanding how Scripture can be inerrant in texts which seemed apparently to be difficult on the surface is to read them as those who wrote them would have read them. I always like to ask myself, how would Jesus and the apostles have understood this text? Turn with me quickly to Philippians. Philippians, okay? It's right after Acts of the Apostles. Then you've got the different communities. So it's right in there. You're going to find it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. You'll know this text quite well. And I'm going to ask you a question. What is the intention of the author when writing this text? This is St. Paul writing. What is he trying to communicate to us about Christ? And don't just give me the Bible talk answer. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. Don't give me the answer now, but I want to know what images flashed to your mind as you're reading that text. And if it's a blank slate there, that's the problem we have to solve. I conclude this section. The most important things to ask yourself who, what, why, where, and when. And if you can answer those questions, you're going to be well on your way to properly reading the text and giving an answer and understanding the revelation which God wants you to understand. Who, what, why, where, and when. It takes some effort. It takes some research. If you're opening up the scriptures, you know, at the beginning of Lent, I know you've done this. You know, I don't know what that means. And you close it. You got to get out your map. You got to get out a little history. You got to get out some commentaries so that you can get into the text and start trying to seek what God wants you to hear from it. However, as I said before, God is the primary author of sacred scripture. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I'm going to put two quotes together, one from the Catechism, one from Dei Verbum. Since sacred scripture is inspired, there is another and no less important principle of correct interpretation. Since sacred scripture must be read with its divine author in mind, no less attention must be devoted to the content and unity of the whole of scripture. If you're writing notes down, you better be scribbling that phrase down. The content and unity of the whole of scripture taking into account the tradition of the entire church and the principle of the analogy of faith. We're going to talk about these three points very quickly. Be attentive to the content and unity of the whole of Scripture. There may be many authors writing in your Bible, many different styles and ways and forms and so forth. However, there is one author writing behind all of that text, So that from Genesis to the book of Revelation, there is one story being communicated across thousands of years and many, many, many different people and styles of writing. There is one author and there is one message he is communicating throughout the entire text. You remember the story in Gospel of Luke when our Lord appeared to the men on the road to Emmaus as they were frustrated. And he says, says, men is slow to believe all that which the prophets 
said about the coming of the Messiah and what must happen. Their problem was they were looking at Jesus on the cross apart from the Old Testament. And if they had been reading the Old Testament properly, this is what Jesus says, and you can look this up anyways, don't look it up now, Luke chapter 24, verse 25 and so forth. He says, you're reading it wrong. You're looking at what I just did wrong. Lift up your eyes and read the Old Testament and you're going to see that God had been planning for this from the beginning. The content and unity of the entire scripture has to be held. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. Context, context, context. Old Testament, story of salvation. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at, to be taken. Who was in the form of God and reached out to try to take it instead of receiving it as a gift? Who? Adam. Taking the form of a servant rather than one who dominates. Being born in the likeness of men rather than the one who is formed in the likeness of God, Adam. And being found in human form, he humbled himself rather than exalted himself. And he became obedient rather than disobedient. Unto death instead of grasping for life. Paul is talking about the story of salvation history and the story primarily of Adam and Eve in the beginning. And unless we read it in that context, we'll miss the entire point. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful text now? Now go back and read the context of what St. Paul's saying to us in chapter 2. And you'll understand what he's telling the community about divine restoration, about how we're called into a greater relationship with God, and how to understand what he's calling us to. You have to look back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Second, we must read the scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. What does this mean? First of all, that the Bible is not meant for the coffee table of heretics. It's to be read within a living community. And first and foremost, to be read in the community of the saints, the fathers of the church, the teachings of the church, and the liturgy of the church. You'll remember in Acts chapter 8, when Philip approached the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch was reading the prophecy of Isaiah, and Philip says to him, do you know what you're reading about? He says, how can I? He says, somebody teaches me. Unless somebody teaches me. If you open up your Bible without the saints, my friends, I'm sorry, you're going to be reading outside the context of the living tradition of the church. You've got to read with the fathers of the church. The analogy of faith. The best way I can describe this is reading within the harmony of the faith. The harmony of the faith. That everything within Scripture has its proper relationship to the whole of Revelation. I see so many people get caught up on one verse and they make their whole spirituality out of one verse. No. Within the entire context of the teaching of the church, its proper place, all is given by one word and so must be understood in its proper relation to the whole and to the purpose of divine revelation. In concluding chapter 3, the fathers of the council say, Indeed, the words of God expressed in the words of men are in every way like human language, just as the word of the Eternal Father, when he took on the flesh of human weakness, became like men. If you want to understand how it's possible for God to speak 
into the limited language of men, place before you the mystery of the incarnation of God. And then you'll start to scratch the surface of understanding how we should approach the sacred scriptures. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 deal with the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'll say one sentence about both. The Old Testament in chapter 4, St. Augustine says, The New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old is unveiled in the New. I said I'd only say one sentence, but that was a quote, so I still get my sentence. (laughs) God prepared in a marvelous fashion beforehand for the fullness of revelation. We can only understand what was going on in the Old Testament when we look at the flower, in a sense, in the New Testament. But we can only understand that flower if we go and we look at the roots. I was thinking how I might explain this to you today. And I was thinking, you know, with my son, I give him things today. I feed him and I hug him and I tell him I love him. And what is the purpose of that? The purpose and the goal is that as he grows, he will become what he's supposed to become. I give him now what will only become evident later in life. And it's not necessary for him to look back and say, I know why my dad hugged me back then. That might be part of it, yeah. But more importantly, that he becomes what he's supposed to become. You cannot read the New Testament without the Old Testament. Because otherwise, you're going to see the full glory of the orchestra. And you're not going to know what went into making that orchestra do its thing. You can't ignore the Old Testament. Nor can you read the Old Testament without seeing its fullness in the New Testament. Chapter 5, regarding the New Testament, the most important point in it is section 19. The purpose was not to write history as we write it today. Do not read the Gospels like you read the New York Times. Personally, I don't read the New York Times because it's boring. The Gospels are a love letter. The story of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you got to read it like that. The apostles delivering the revelation of the Word of God were not interested, I, I can't, I'm not to say not interested in historical accuracy, they were, but not interested in giving to you every single minute detail, one, then the next, then the next, because their entire purpose was to communicate the divine revelation of God. And so sometimes they even possibly converge stories so as to communicate that truth to you. Never telling an inaccuracy, but a way, a poetic way of delivering the mystery of God's divine revelation to us. So that we could see in the text, not what we see in New York Times, but what we receive in the gospel stories. And chapter 6, and I will conclude with this quotation as a way to conclude the importance which the church places on divine revelation on reading sacred scripture, I am so sick and tired of hearing people say that the church told them they shouldn't read the Bible. I've never once read that in any church document, and I've read a lot of church documents that were written when you were kids. So I'm sorry if a nun told you you shouldn't do it, or if a priest told you you shouldn't do it, but it wasn't the teaching of the church. This is the teaching of the church. The church has always venerated the divine scriptures as she venerates the body of the Lord. In the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. Thus, the church strives to reach day by day a more profound understanding of the sacred scriptures. 
Sacred theology relies on the written word of God taken together with sacred tradition as on a permanent foundation. Therefore, the study of the sacred page should be the very soul of theology. Likewise, the sacred center forcefully and specifically exhorts all Christians, that's you, all Christian faithful to learn the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ by frequently reading the divine scriptures. Ignorance of scripture, as St. Jerome states, is ignorance of Christ. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break. The point that I was making was reading it within the proper context of the unity, the content and unity of the whole of Scripture. Okay, that you can't read the New Testament without the Old Testament. So I'll share this quote with you from Father James Groning. He says, For the beginning of Christ's passion, he chose a wonderfully beautiful garden. How significant this choice was. In a garden, the first Adam had committed the first sin, the sin of disobedience. Therefore, it was in a garden that the second Adam should say to his father, Not what I will, but what thou wilt. In a garden, Adam, by an abuse of liberty, had plunged the entire human race into the most shameful captivity. In a garden, therefore, by the bonds of Christ, our fetters were to be broken. In a garden, God had pronounced the death penalty upon Adam. Hence, in a garden, Christ would take upon himself the judgment of this curse. In a garden, the human race was lost, and usually an object is sought where it was lost. From Father James Groning. It's in his book, Christ in Gethsemane. So, my point is, always reading within the whole story of salvation history. Otherwise, we cherry-pick a verse that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Or, worse than that, we import nonsense into it. And make it mean something that it was never intended to mean. You've got to know the Old Testament. And you, it's got to be on your fingertips. You're reading the Gospel of John, you're going to be thinking like John would have been thinking. And if you're not thinking in that way, we're going to have a problem right off the bat. And that's why it's so important to have the saints and fathers of the church right with you. Because they're thinking like that for you. So when you, are, you have Father James groaning his great, great insight, one that you may never have thought about. And how many times have we meditated upon the agony in the garden? And we never came up with that one, did we? But there it is. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Anyways, okay, questions, yes. In the uh, document on the infallibility of the Pope's teaching, you know, there are, he has to use the, you know, very specific method and, and wording, and it's only on faith and morals in order to have infallibility, which is, to me, without error. Contrast that with what you were explaining today about the, the speaking and teaching role of the church passing on the positive faith. Yeah, the same, as far as infallibility is concerned. The point of this, though, is that when sacred scripture is being delivered to us, that the church teaches it is inerrant in what it's delivering, and not just limited to faith and morals, but inerrant even historically. And you say, well, wait a minute, there's times when it looks like it contradicts itself, and that's why I made that point. And De Verbo makes the same point in chapter 5, talking about the writers of the New Testament saying that you have to understand 
the who, what, why, where, and when, right? the intention of the author. And someone asked me earlier, saying, you're talking about two authors. And maybe I didn't make that point very well, but the real question is, what is inspiration? Is it like having this pen, and God's holding the pen, and, and the human author is the pen, and he's writing, so that the pen simply gives ink, if you will? No. And that's where Pius XII's comment is so beautiful. It says, it takes the human person and elevates them to communicate everything which God wants communicated and to do it without error, all the while using that gift of God's imprint of image and likeness, which has its own character and way and culture and expression. So that reading the scriptures is absolutely essential. You cannot do it without it. It's to understand the context of the writer. But no, that scripture is inerrant through and through, okay, as long as you understand what the intention of the author, both divine and human, are. I don't understand how this quote up here, mm-hmm. how anyone could make an issue out of it if the writers or the Pope uh, made a footnote about what it's supposed to mean. I mean, yeah. how could this Father Raymond Brown even write a book oh, like no. that without... Yeah, first of all, I need, to be, I, I need to show some respect to Father Raymond Brown because he is possibly one of the greatest biblical scholars of the modern world. And if he were here today, he would tear me apart and throw me out the door. In fact, his book that I have here, if you wanted a book on the infancy narrative, you're not going to probably find one much better as long as you slash and burn sections of it. But how is it? Because, no, I'm saying he's got insights into the text because he knows the biblical languages so well. He's studied this stuff so well. If you're not interested, ultimately, in being in that relationship which Dave Verboom talks about, that company of the saints, the company of God, as the first and foremost, most important thing, then you're going to fall back upon human knowledge, and you become dominant, and I said this in the first thing, I didn't make that, that big of a point. The question is, who's the one that's judging the sacred scriptures? Is it up to man to judge divine revelation? Or is it up to God to judge man? We are the ones who receive God's word, not the ones who judge it. Because the things which God delivers to us in his word are above and beyond our natural capacity to know. That's why faith is fundamental, without which you cannot move forward. Because with faith, you lay your intellect and will, not aside, but in the hands of the one who knows that which you cannot know. Namely, the things of God himself. Not part of our natural order, part of the supernatural order. And only by doing that, Do you have an opportunity in this year of faith to walk through a door which you don't know the other side of? And you'll only know the other side of it when you lay aside that preconceived judgment. And so the problem that Father Raymond Brown is falling into here is a problem with modern biblical exegesis, which we talked about a little bit more explicitly on my thing on on the flood that we did over at St. Michael's. It's not just a problem with Father Raymond Brown. It's a problem with modern biblical scholarship. Now, Pius XII says, you still don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's a lot of insights that modern biblical scholarship has given us. And yet, sometimes, and very oftentimes, the approach which is taken, how we approach the scriptures, is problematic. And instead of approaching with humility and faith, 
we approach with pride and judgment. And when we do that, then you can find a loophole the size of a truck to drive through in a text like this. For us in this room, you're reading this text and you say, oh, thank God they put a footnote there. Huh? Because without a footnote, you're right. It could be confusing. And this is why, and I have to say this because we're being recorded, this, this is why for all of our, our lovely traditionalists out there, there could be a problem with this text. And some people would say the Council Fathers wrote it poorly. And to be honest with you, I might just agree with them. It, it's not all that clear. And it had it not been for the footnote, we might be in trouble. Though, and perhaps you've addressed it, isn't the problem scripture scholars who are, go into all this stuff who don't have faith? That's my, that's my point. If you do it without faith, then you're, you're using a human science to judge things that the human science has no business judging. And so, then you've got a problem. Why, okay. why do these people become such uh, widely read people? I think even in seminaries, maybe, and you know, certainly theology department, why do we look to people who aren't faith-filled yeah. in order to be expert? I'm quite sure, like you said, he has made some very good points about the infancy narratives. But there are a lot of people who have yeah. saint for their first name. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I understand that. However, however, I will say that Father Raymond Brown and many others started out on a really great road. I could read you quotes that you would fall off your chair from Father Raymond Brown. Insights that I've used with uh, even the missionaries of charity. He's got this beautiful commentary in the Gospel of John. It's to die for. It's beautiful. But it was before something happened. And a lot of these guys, I don't know what happened. I mean, they all got in the same room and took drugs and flipped out. But, I mean, there's a, a book up here. I won't say who it is, but there's a beautiful cardinal of the church. And then later on, you read his stuff, and the faith is gone. And so these guys, some of their stuff is very good, and some of it is very dangerous. And someone said, why not get rid of it? And in the old days, the church would have. Um, is that kind of like Tertullian and Origen, who had such a great start yeah. and then kind of fell Absolutely. at the end? Um, my question is on the historical critical method and how it's really become such a bad term. But is this, what we just read tonight and what you've just talked about, historical critical method done right? And what Father Brown has done with that, historical critical done incorrectly and badly? Oh, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want to, yeah. <laughs> I guess, yes. The, the only thing is I wouldn't want to throw out, again, the baby with the bathwater. There's stuff I did not go over tonight that is very valuable. But you'll hear his language here about the historicity, right? No absolute guarantee of historicity. And when there's a bigger thing going on there that you can listen to my thing on the flood. But I would say, yes, this is the, the principles I was going over tonight are an important part of a critical method. However, those are not usually the instructions given for those trying to use a critical method. There's all sorts of other instructions given, which can be helpful, but also on times have led into dangerous areas. But right, in terms of us putting ourselves in the mind and the times of the writers, yes. that that's the historical for, kind yeah, of critical those, where you're, you're there. Yes, for those here present, that's where I would go, right there. Who, what, why, where, and when. It's not that hard, and as a Catholic... I used that image last time of Tim Gray's The Stained Glass Window. And it's very similar to G.K. Chesterton on The Everlasting Man, as he says, so many people 
stand at the door of the church, right face to face at the door of the church, and they're banging on the door of the church, and they're screaming and yelling at the church, and they never walk in the door to see what it's all about. And they're too close to see it from a distance. He says, instead of banging on the doors, either walk in the door or get way, 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 way back on the mountain so that you can see the church from its broad, universal, historical perspective, and then you can start to see it in its proper context. But the problem is you're face-to-face like this, and you can't see anything. Walk inside. The sun will shine through those stained glass windows. You'll see the beautiful icons, and suddenly the faith will become alive. And of course, I'm not talking about stained glass windows and icons. I'm talking about the, the body of Christ to step in in faith. And then the Eucharist and baptism and marriage and, and all of divine revelation, that veil will be, can be lifted off our eyes. And we can start to begin to experience the wonder of that gift of God's company. And we'll discover right there in the church the life of the Trinity. And how many of us wouldn't love to stand in the shoes of the Son of God from all eternity looking into the Father's eyes and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.